after the end of the Manhattan Project, the Atomic Energy Commission, which is now the U.S. Department of Energy, um, wanted to launch three hospitals around the country. So they opened one here in Argonne, um, outside Chicago, and then in Brookhaven in New York to basically study, you know, now that we, now that we knew what the Manhattan Project could do and what radiation could do kind of on the negative side, what could we do on the positive side to, um, in this case, could we use radiation to treat cancer? You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. As ever, it's me, your host, Michael Holtz, from the Communications and Marketing Department at ORAU. And today, um, I get the tables turned on me a little bit. So I've been working on a project for about the last year, um, a research project into ORU's cancer history and capabilities and how all of that aligns with the federal government's priorities um, in the cancer space. And I have invited Matthew Underwood and Brenda Blunt to interview me about the white paper. So Matthew and Brenda are going to turn the tables on me. Matthew and Brenda, welcome to Further Together, the ORU podcast. Welcome back, because I know Matthew's been a co-host before, and Brenda, we've interviewed us several times. So, Thanks, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's going to be a different experience for you, I'm sure, to take the questions instead of giving them. So I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. So just to set the stage, um, as I said, I, so I received a Thought Leadership Research Award to write a white paper aligning our capabilities with the federal government's priorities to end cancer as we know it. Um, and this white paper also includes a little bit of a dive into ORAU's history, um, particularly running a cancer hospital for 24 years. And um, someday I would love, and maybe this is a Rupo question, to be funded to write a book about that whole thing, because I think there's definitely enough content to write a book about the people and the research and what we've learned. Um, but all of that kind of set the stage for what we know today about nuclear medicine and radiation therapy and even some oncology and immuno immunotherapy that came out of that 24 years of us running the hospital. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So, <laughs> so I'm going to turn Michael, over to you. Yes. Yeah. So, Michael, do you want to share with our audience a little bit about what a Thought Leadership Award is and who RUPO is, since we use that acronym already? <laughs> I know. Yeah. We're so used to speaking like that in the, in the organization. So I should explain that RUPO is our Research and University Partnerships Office, which works with our university partners, 153, 154 at this point, um, around the country um, to continue that, to build that consortium, grow our relationship with those universities. But one of the 
One of the many grant programs offered by the Research and University Partnerships Office is the Thought Leadership Research Awards. And this is a program that provides support for publications that will be submitted to peer-reviewed journals, um, time and travel to present research results at professional meetings, um, create white papers, um, basically activities that support ORAU-directed research and development planning activities and other research-related activities. And we've talked about ORAU-directed research and development projects many, many times um, on Further Together. Brenda, you and I have talked about at least one, maybe a couple, um, of those kind of things. And so ORAU-directed research and development projects are basically co-funded research projects between our subject matter experts and a university partner who are investigating a specific question. Um, Brenda, I know you and Davida worked on a project related to comp women and complementary medicine. Um, we have you know, many others related to um, disaster planning in rural areas and, and lots of topics basically that cover all of our capability areas. Um, and so in my, in this white paper, I kind of get to setting the stage for, here are eight ideas for ODRD research projects. And um, we'll talk about those um, after a while, but basically that's where this white paper grew out of was, I saw the call for, for applications and I said, I would love to do that. Here's an idea and that idea got funded. So that was pretty cool. And so for a year I got to work on diving into the history of the organization and leaning into some of my advocacy work to make some recommendations. So talk a little bit about that. Like what made you interested in this? Talk, tell us about your advocacy work. Sure. So I am, um, it's, November, so um, almost a 12-year survivor of stage 3B rectal cancer. And um, at the time that I was diagnosed, you know, aside from the shock of hearing the words, you have cancer, and um, went through a year of treatment, um, I was working for a nonprofit organization, the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, which is the legislative advocacy arm of the American Cancer Society. Um, so I was already kind of immersed in cancer advocacy world professionally. Um, and suddenly this thing that I knew of theoretically, you know, I knew people who had cancer, but no one in my family, I was the first person in my family to be diagnosed with cancer. So suddenly I'm dealing with a cancer diagnosis and my own treatment and prognosis and, and all of those things. Um, but when treatment was finished, I dove headfirst into being a volunteer advocate. So um, left my job at ACS CAN <clears throat> to go work in public health for a little while um, and came back six months later in 2015 to be the state lead ambassador for ACS CAN. I've also been a national ambassador for Fight Colorectal Cancer. I'm on the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship Cancer Policy Advocacy Team. Um, 
and recently took a leadership role in an organization called Man Up to Cancer, um, which is really important to me and, and focuses on men and mental health issues in their um, cancer journeys. So um, kind of been in a lot of different places, but primarily focused on um, policy advocacy in particular. So when I saw the call for entries for the Thought Leadership Research Awards, I looked, thought about what it is that I do, what it is that we as, as ORU does as, as a government contractor, and is was there a way to bring that together using what I've learned in 20 years of, of policy advocacy, but eight, you know, almost eight years of that as a volunteer, um, could I bring those together to make recommendations for some, some work that we could do, some contracts that we could pursue at some point, all of that. And then it turns out we also have this really interesting history um, that I had just been learning about anyway at about the time that the Thought Leadership Award applications opened. Um, so it sort of made sense to bring all of that together in one place. That makes sense, Michael. And, you know, me and you have been kind of working behind the scenes on a lot of, you know, ORU's cancer history and, you know, going back to the cancer hospital. Do you want to touch a little bit on that, just a little bit on the history side of what all's included and kind of how it all started from with ORU with the cancer research? Yeah, yeah. So um, after the end of the Manhattan Project, the Atomic Energy Commission, which is now the U.S. Department of Energy, um, wanted to launch three hospitals around the country. So they opened one here in Argonne, um, outside Chicago, and then in Brookhaven in New York to basically study, you know, now that we, now that we knew what the Manhattan Project could do and what radiation could do kind of on the negative side, what could we do on the positive side to, um, in this case, could we use radiation to treat cancer? And so the Oak Ridge Institute for Nuclear Studies, which was our original name back when we launched in, after the Manhattan Project, um, stood up one of these cancer hospitals. And for 24 years, we, we ran this hospital basically conducting research on how to use radiation to treat cancer. And we saw over the course of um, 24 years, the hospital stayed open until 1974, um, about 3,500 patients, almost all of them were terminal. Coming to one of these hospitals was really a Hail Mary um, in terms of, you know, these, these people are likely to pass away from cancer. Can we do something about it using this new technology? Um, and so that's how it started. And then over the course of those 24 years, the medical team was instrumental in developing some of the equipment that we kind of take for granted today in terms of um, linear accelerators and um, radio teletherapy machines um, and, you know, other equipment that, you know, if, if you're a cancer patient today and you experience radiation therapy, it's still the same kind of stuff that, that they're using. 
um, built on this foundation that was started in Oak Ridge 20, you know, in 1950. And it's so cool because, you know, we've talked about it and, you know, it's kind of not really talked about, you know, when ORU talks about the cancer research really is not brought to the forefront a lot, but it's so cool that, you know, all this cancer research started at ORU and it's led to, like you said, some of the same technology that's being used today. Absolutely. And, you know, when I tell people, did you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, you had no idea. Even people who have lived here, you know, for decades have no idea that this was going on right here in their backyard. So it's um, it's been kind of fun to bring this topic of discussion kind of to the forefront to help people understand that, you know, they're, they're standing close to a place where you know, we've learned so much about cancer and, you know, cancer is one of those diseases that affects everyone. Um, you know, whether you're personally diagnosed or you know somebody, um, so that has a huge impact. Yeah. And I think the other thing, Michael, is, you know, a lot of people don't know the history, but they also, um, or, or use a large organization, don't really know the full spectrum of what we do today. Still in the cancer space. So we may not have the cancer hospital, but ORAU still does work, whether it's on the policy side or actually treatment sides. We still have kind of arms into various aspects. Did you find anything surprising about that, the kind of the current state of our space? Um, I don't know surprising, but how really, Brenda, as you said, sort of how deep and how long we've been involved in cancer-related work. You know, I think about things like um, NIOSH and the National Supplemental Screening Program and, you know, these long-term epidemiologic studies that we've been involved in for decades, tracking energy workers and people who've been exposed to radiation. Um, I mean, we've been doing that it seems like forever um, because we've been doing it for so long, but, you know, we have programs that track the health of people who work in in the nuclear industry and who've been exposed to radiation and what is that doing long-term. Um, also, you know, just we do so much in the health communication space as well, just in terms of helping people understand, um, you know, historically, how do you um, talk about breast cancer. How do you talk about screening to make sure that you get the screenings that you need? Um, and then we have the great work that Dr. Balaji is doing, and, and I've had the pleasure of talking to him on the podcast with Columbia University Medical Center about flash radiation. And, you know, as, as someone who had 28 rounds of, of radiation in a part of the body that should not be radiated, um, having had rectal cancer, the thought of flash radiation and like having one dose of radiation over 28, I was like, sign me up for that. Like if I had to do it again, I'd volunteer all day to do that. So, so yeah, it's just really amazing how, um, how long we've been involved in cancer work at some level. And Brenda, as you said, like people don't know, people don't, mm-hmm. people don't understand the, the, you know, breadth of our capabilities. Um, and I know I've been at, you know, because we have universities in our name, you know, I've been asked like, what do you teach? 
hey, when does school start? And like, uh, sorry, we don't do that. Right. Well, and <laughs> but let me tell you what we do do. Yeah. And it's, you know, we also have our CMMI Inspire Fellows who work yep. with CMS on the policy side and looking for new payment and delivery models to, to open up access but also to be able to help people reach these newer innovations um, and making sure, you know, how do they get covered? And so yeah. I, I think it's really important. so important, mm -hmm. you know, as, as, and sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but as cancer treatment evolves and gets better, it also gets more expensive. Yep. So to have CMMI inspire, be able to help open the doors so that cancer patients can get the latest and greatest treatments covered. Um, one of the policy areas that we've been advocating for um, with a couple of the organizations that I do are you know, these up and coming multi-cancer early detection tests and making sure that once they have FDA approval, they're covered by Medicare. And you know that's gonna be critically important for prevention and early detection. So. I suspect the CMMI folks will be right up in the middle of that when that legislation passes. So. Right. I think it's so cool though, you know, you talk about all these different pieces that kind of came together when you're putting together this research, you know, you have your personal history, you have ORU's history, you have what the company's currently doing. How did all those pieces kind of fit together when you're trying to put together the overall aspect of the white paper? No, it was, so it was this kind of crazy full circle moment, right? Of like, realizing I spent 28 days <laughs> lying on a radiation bed and then, wow, look at this, like this all started here. So it was sort of, you know, that kind of obvious connection, but then the connection between the advocacy work that I do and really what we do as an organization, being a government contractor, um, it just felt like there was so much synergy that could bring all of those pieces together and to get to to get to the recommendations i had to tell at least some of the history story to say you know the reason i can make these recommendations is because we have this breadth of experience doing this work um and so it's sort of the kind of the chicken and the egg sort of thing, right? I had to tell, had to tell the history to get to the, here's why I'm making these recommendations. And like right in the middle of that is me saying, I've been a policy advocate for a really long time. And this is stuff that's important to my community of cancer survivors and cancer patients. And so here's where I feel like I can make a difference and hopefully um, bridge that gap to these are great ideas for research now can we get some of this research off the ground so you bring up those recommendations kind of the highlight of the paper you want to kind of walk us through some of those and kind of what the research led to yeah so um i make a bunch of recommendations um including so we talk a lot you know today in in the cancer space, but really in the research space about um, 
reaching underserved populations. And so one of my recommendations is developing a research project focusing on improving cancer screening rates among um, underserved populations, especially black and LGBTQ communities. Um, in particularly the colorectal cancer space, but really in most cancers, the black populations are diagnosed and the LGBTQ Q population are often diagnosed at much later stages than white people. Um, <clears throat> there are any number of reasons for that. Uh, you know, on the part of the black population, it's mistrust of, of medical of the medical establishment that has way long historical roots. Um, access to care in general. Um, transportation issues, like all of the, the um, social determinants, determinants of health issues that really have an impact on whether or not people can get quality care in the first place. And we see over and over and over again that there are, there are significant asset access issues. On the part of the LGBTQ folks, it's perceptions of discrimination often that they don't want to. They don't want to talk about who they are because of fear that they're going to be discriminated against, or because they have talked about their sexual identity, they get discriminated against. So there's this this disconnect between you know their their sexual sexual identity and their ability to get the care that they need. So um, that's a big that's a big one. Um, and a really important one, and really why I made it the first recommendation is um, it's just really important. Um, then, and this is my second recommendation, and this is just an issue that's important to me because I've been to several con conferences where they talk about patient-reported outcome measures, and patient-reported outcome measures are outcomes basically patients responding to questions from their providers, often between treatments. So going back to my cancer treatment, so I would have chemotherapy every other Wednesday. So I would go in on Wednesday, I would spend all day in the chemo chair, take a pump home for two days, disconnect on a Friday, basically be down for the weekend because once I disconnected from that pump, I was exhausted. In theory, that middle Wednesday, <clears throat> I would be asked, and again, this was in 2012, so the world's changed a lot in, in patient care. In today's patient care environment, a patient would be asked on that middle Wednesday, how are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, do you have a temperature? All of those things. The challenge with that is... Um, and th there's lots of research being done in how to how to best collect those patient reported outcome measures. Um, often they involve going into your healthcare system's patient portal, which is awesome for the healthcare system. <laughs> Not so awesome for the patient because you have to remember a password. You might have to input credit card information before you can get to the spot in the portal where you report your outcomes. Um, so they need, basically, the recommendation is they need to make it simple. Um, I was actually at a conference 
um, the ASCO Patient Quality Care Conference um, a year ago. And they had a ton of presentations and, and um, abstracts about patient-reported outcomes and how could they best do this. And one of the areas where they're having trouble getting patient-reported outcomes is from men. And so I went to the microphone and I said, let me tell you, I said, when you feel like crap because chemo has completely washed you out and you barely feel like getting up, the last thing you want to do is try to remember the password to your patient portal. Like if you can text me a survey monkey, you know, and I can do it on my phone or um, in my recommendation, there's a company that actually makes a, a patient hub. So you wake up on the day that you report your outcomes. It asks you to step on the scale. As you step on the scale, it says, take your temperature. Let's take your blood pressure. Like it does all of this stuff automatically and then uploads that to your provider. Your provider then can look at that and, you know, make any, you know, adjustments to your care if it's the day before you go in for chemo and you're running a fever, for example, you know, you're probably not going to get chemo the next day unless the fever is broken. So it'll ask you, you know, it can ask you on the morning of your chemotherapy appointment, you know, to take your temperature. And instead of you making a wasted trip to the, to the cancer treatment center where they're just going to send you home anyway, you've subverted that and you get to stay home and, you know, wait until the next opportunity to take your, you know, to do your chemotherapy session. So that's just one example, but, you know, really important for improving how patient reported outcomes can be, can be taken. Yeah. And I think that's cool, you know, from both, you know, both points there going back to, you know, kind of the testing and, you know, early diagnosis of people, I think it's cool because in your personal experience, you've been able to see that firsthand, you know, in some of your cancer advocacy groups, you know, I know we had talked about in a previous conversation with your um, man up to cancer, you meet people all the time that just because they're men, you know, they don't want to be tested because they've been told for so long and they don't want to talk about their diagnosis because they've been told for so long, oh, you have to hide those feelings. You're, you can't talk about things that you're going through. You can't talk about that. And I'm sure it applies, you know, the same way with, you know, the African-American community and everyone else, you know, and you've seen that firsthand. And then from the patient portal standpoint, you've seen that, you know, from your personal experience, you've seen mm -hmm. the last thing you want to do is have to, you know, go into the portal and upload your information. Right. On that. So I think it's cool that you're able to kind of tie those personal experiences into kind of these recommendations and how that all ties together. And that yeah. was really, sorry, go ahead, Brenda. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that patient portal thing is huge because I'm, even for women, I mean, I've had significant orthopedic surgeries that for two years, you know, there's set increments where they want to send you those surveys to get the patient reported outcome measures or proms, as we call them. Um, and it's a pain. It's like the first couple, you're like, okay. But after that, you're into your like daily life. And right. you got to stop everything. You know, it's not just a quick scan at an email. You got to stop. Right, right, right. Like you said, you got to try and remember the login. You got, which we all have different logins. Some, it's not just the password. Now you got to try and remember the username. Is it your email address? <laughs> Is it something you created? Is it a number? Um, and it, it becomes a whole, then if the system has a glitch, then, 
And it's not. And people don't want to do it. And I can only imagine if you're not feeling well. I mean, I knew what it was like when I was still dealing with post-surgery. It's even more like I don't want to go sit in front of my computer and try to go through all these steps. Absolutely. And depending, Brenda, you know, how many doctors you have, you may have (laughs) six different patient portals at any one time because of where your practice is. right? Right. And I'll say, I mean, patient reported outcomes. So I want to go back just a minute because they're critically important. As we look at how do we measure healthcare quality and how do we measure how treatments are doing? They're really important because treatments affect different groups of people in different ways. They affect individuals differently, but they also tell a fuller story. So sometimes, you know, providers can say, oh, your blood work looks great or your most recent scan looks great. So if you just take that level of data and that information, it looks like the treatment is great, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it does, you don't get the full story on right. what is healthcare quality like and what are the patients experiencing? And that's really, you know, I can get on a whole soapbox about how we need to individualize <laughs> care and people need to have more input into what are their goals for care? Because, that's how we start to eliminate some of the disparities is really understanding the patient that's in front of you and addressing their needs, their goals, their experiences versus just this set care plan that everybody gets the same thing. And the measurements look like it's the right care plan, but it doesn't address those patient level differences. So I, right. I, want, I just wanted to go back and add that because I don't want it to sound like we're down on patient-reported outcome measures. Oh, no, we're not. No, we need to find a better way to collect them. Yeah, they're, they're critical, you know, partly, certainly because of what you said about personalized medicine, but also, you know, particularly with an illness like cancer, people expect to feel bad. You know, people expect to feel like chemo is going to make them feel like crap for a couple of days or whatever. But so they may not report that they've been running a fever for six days or they, you know, they've got pain somewhere that maybe they shouldn't have pain. Um, so having those patient reported outcome measures are critical, um, again, for sort of breaking through that level of, well, I just expect this is part of the process. So I'm not going to bring it up with my doctor. You know, whereas the doctor can say, well, it looks like you've been running a fever for six days. We need to do something about that, you know. So, um, yeah, they're 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 hugely important. And I I think that um, any way we can make it easier for patients to provide that data, um, it will go a long way to to getting to personalized medicine and really to improving care overall. Yeah. To your point, you know, not only does it, is it important from both sides of it? Cause yeah, you know, the patient goes in and they're like, Hey, this is how I'm feeling, which is good for the doctor to know. And on the other side for the doctor, it's, you know, you can say, yeah, that's not normal, you know? Um, so right. we need to do something about it. So it's important on both sides to one, know how the patient's feeling. And if it is hard for them to do, they're not going to do it. And in which case yeah. on one side of it, you know, the doctor may never know that something's going on. So with the easier access to be able to, for them to upload that information, not only makes it easier for them to tell the doctor what's going on, but it could be critical in their care in the long run. Absolutely. Absolutely true. 
Um, so my third recommendation is to um, identify best practices for communication to improve the uptake of low-dose CT for lung cancer screenings. Um, we know, and actually recommendations for low-dose CT um, were just adjusted um, by the American Cancer Society and others really recently, but low-dose low CT is currently the best measure for early early detection and prevention of lung cancer, particularly among people who have smoked. Um, but the uptake is really, really low, in part because it's hard to explain <laughs> who's eligible for that screening, right? It's You have to have been quit for so many years and have so many, you know, cigarette pack a day, you know, lifespan. And, um, so it's not easy to talk about. It's not like oh, you're 45, it's time for a colonoscopy. It's, you know, <laughs> there are these three pieces of math that, that have to sort of come together. So um, looking at, is there a better way to talk about um, how to get people to ask for um, and for doctors to recommend, hey, it's time for you to get, oh, you know, I know you've been a smoker, it's time for you to get, you know, one of these screenings because it could save your life. Yeah, I think that's important, you know, talking about, you know, because they are at higher risk. So the easier access they have to be able to figure out, okay, am I eligible? That's really important because they might not even know, you know, these people might not even know that they're eligible. And like you said, it could change their life, save their life in some cases. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and then let's see, um, a research project focused on cancer-related stigma and preferences for or against using militaristic language to describe a patient's cancer treatment experience. So um, this is always sort of an, a below ground sort of um, conversation that happens often among cancer patients and survivors. But, you know, you hear phrases like fight like a girl and, you know, continue the fight and, you know, um, the war on cancer and, you know, all of the, you know, all of this sort of militaristic, you know, like lost his battle, won his battle, you know, all of that kind of language. Um, and is that a good or a bad thing? I, I mean, I know lots of cancer survivors and patients who really, really hate using that kind of language. Um, but then does language like cancer journey <laughs> adequately express, you know, what someone is going through? So is there a middle ground? Is there is there another way to talk about um, how someone experiences going through cancer? And Michael, would you say that, you know, on any given journey, and I'll just use that because it's a common kind of term in our research now as we really try to understand experiences. Would you say, and from your experience personally, that, that how you feel about those terms varies sometimes on a day by day, but also where you are and kind of what you're current, what you're currently going through during treatment. Yeah I, think it, yeah. I think for me, it totally changed because when I was in the middle of it, absolutely. I was using that, that, you know, battle language of, you know, I'm fighting for my life and I'm, you know, this is a fight and I'm going to win and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But now that I'm on the other side of the, of the treatment, aspect and, and you know I'm definitely well into survivorship 
um, I talk more about my cancer journey and my cancer experience. And, um, you know, I particularly because I'm so far removed from the, the hard part, the battle part. Um, but then, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to people who are, you know, they're chemo lifers and they're, you know, I have a friend who's on his like 142nd round of chemotherapy um, for colon cancer. Um, one of my best friends in, in Denver um, just did number 62. So um, they're still using that language. And I totally respect that, you know, that they do because that's where they are. I think it's, it helps with the mindset while you're in the middle of it, while you're in the middle of the treatment aspect. Um, but afterward, I think when you take a step out of it, it changes your perspective, if that makes sense. It does. And I, you know, I think I've, so I've done a lot of work in the addiction space and mm -hmm. substance use disorders. And, you know, there's mixed term, there's mixed feelings about terminology there. But one of the things that we hear there is when you say, you know, you're fighting this disease, you're doing this, is that if there's a setback, then it kind of gives people the sense of I failed because yep. there was a setback and whether that be, you know, in the addiction space, a relapse or, you know, just something else going on. Um, so sometimes people like to use it. And then once they hit that setback, they're like, Oh, wait a minute. Then it puts everything on me. And then it's like, I failed somehow. Right. Did, did you hear any of that? Kind of yeah, I, I think that's especially true for people who have passed away from cancer. You know, they lost their fight with cancer um, or, you know, and that makes them a victim of something that or, you know, makes them sound like a loser for something that they didn't really have control over. Right. It wasn't it wasn't their fault. They, quote unquote, lost the battle battle. Um, their cancer was super aggressive or treatment didn't work or, you know, um, so I think that, that aspect alone is worth just revisiting and, you know, talking about, uh, you know, how to adjust the language because, you know, people who pass away from cancer haven't lost anything. I mean, they've lost their lives, but they didn't lose they, they didn't lose a battle over, you know, an aggressor. It's not because they gave up. It's not because, you know, they didn't do something, um, if that makes sense. No, it really does. And I think, you know, language is so important on so many levels. They're not just words. Right. Um, so I, I think it, that was a really good one. And kind of when reading your paper, when I saw that, I was like, that would be such an interesting you know, really getting to that patient level and how should we be talking about it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what's acceptable to patients and, and what's not. And again, it, it may be different depending on where people are. So um, my next recommendation comes really from the conversation that we had earlier this year for preparedness month with um, our folks on the preparedness team um, about, ensuring inclusion of the special needs of cancer patients in disaster preparedness guidelines, you know, making sure that, um, and I, I, I relate this to an experience that I had. So when I worked for the American Cancer Society um, during Hurricane Katrina, 
we had a number of evacuees from New Orleans who came and stayed at the Coliseum here in Knoxville. And one of the gentlemen who was here was um, an esophageal cancer patient who lost his electronic voice box. So he couldn't communicate, right? And so ensuring that in, and I don't know how specific, and we were able to get one, a replacement one for him from an organization here in Knoxville, but, you know, to prepare for like making sure people pack the things that, that make their quality of life better, um, you know, have a go back with, you know, in my case, colostomy supplies, because I'm going to need those when I'm, you know, out on the road somewhere um, in the middle of nowhere, I have no idea where I'm going to land, um, you know, or canes or their meds or, you know, at least know where their meds are. Um, take the, take your prescriptions with you, take your survivor care plan or your treatment plan with you, because if you get displaced, you know, you might have to do chemotherapy at someone else's hospital. At least you have your care plan with you so that people know, um, you know, what, what to do with you as a patient. Um, if you're in their, if you're in their catchment area. So, um, just that kind of stuff, you know, to be, to be mindful of, but help cancer patients understand that there's a different level of preparedness that they may not think about, um, while they're in the middle of treatment. Oh, I think that's really important because, you know, we have natural disasters all over the country right now in my area of Tennessee, we have wildfires popping up kind of all over. And while right now none of them are huge they tennessee and california and other places have wildfires that you have to evacuate for and you don't have a lot of time to say oh let me go let me print out my care plan let me go gather my ostomy supplies let me gather this other thing that you don't have time for that so having that preparedness and kind of that education to say okay and really think about it on a regular basis because what you set up today may not be the same stuff six months from now that's right that's right. Yeah. And, you know, making sure you're oral, if you're oral, if you're on oral chemo, that it's accessible or you know, whatever, you know, whatever that looks like, but just to make sure that it's ready to go when you are. Well, it's a good point to go back kind of the conversation we had earlier. You know, when you're sick or you're going through chemotherapy, you're, these are probably things you're not wanting to think about. You know, on the day of, you know, let's say a natural disaster does happen. Like Brenda said, not only do you have a lot of not have a lot of time, but it's also one of those things. That's the last thing you're thinking about when you don't feel well. <laughs> is, oh, I need to get this and this and this together right now. So, you know, to have all that stuff ahead of time and being ready to go in case something does happen, it just makes the cancer experience so much better if you do need it, you know, because if you do need it and you have to displace, the last thing you want to do when you don't feel well already is get all that stuff together on a right now basis. Absolutely. Great point. Um, This recommendation is a very... (laughs) very newly personal to me um, recommendation just based on some my involvement lately in a group called Man Up to Cancer, but basically a research project focused on the benefits of peer-to-peer support to the mental health and quality of life of men diagnosed with cancer. Um, (laughs) Several things here. Peer-to-peer support, you know, exists, support groups exist. Um, they're primarily, in my experience anyway, mixed gender, um, support groups. There are, 
there have been support groups for men with prostate cancer, but not necessarily just for men with other cancers or for, you know, for say colorectal cancer, that sort of thing. Um, so on the one hand, that peer to peer support is really important for helping people understand that they're not alone, that, um, there is help available, but you know, if, if you need someone just to talk to, you know, folks are available. Um, the, on the mental health side of that, we're already, we already have a mental health crisis in our country. Um, the pandemic certainly laid bare the you know, level of um, depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation that exists. And certainly lockdown measures and all of that fun stuff didn't help um, with all of that. So there's the highest the group with the highest risk of suicide is men in their 40s, right? Um, they start having fewer connections to other people, to other men, you know, all of those things. Then you throw cancer on top of that. And in the research that I did, you know, about 13,000 people a year commit suicide after they've been diagnosed with cancer. 83% of those are men because as men, we're historically taught to, you know, gut it out and be heroic and stoic. And we don't talk about our feelings and we don't talk about the rough stuff that we're going to. We're just expected to deal with it and move on. Well, in my experience with a man up to cancer in particular, guys need and they want that connection. They want to be able to talk to somebody who understands what they're going through, who, who they can ask questions of, who they can talk about things that they're not going to talk about in a room where there are other women. You know, um, chemotherapy does dramatically exciting things for sexual function and other aspects of, <laughs> of you know, male identity and... Men aren't going to talk about that in a mixed group, but they'll talk about that with other guys. So um, it's really, and there's not a ton of research. There's lots of research on peer-to-peer -peer support for women, not a ton on peer-to-peer -peer support for men. So I would love to see a research project that starts getting that ball rolling. Um, from, the, from my involvement in Man Up to Cancer, um, and I'm on the leader, national leadership team. So um, we have a Facebook group of about 2,400 guys from around the world um, who connect with each other, not only on Facebook, but in person. So there are chapters that have sprouted up around North America. Um, and when I travel, you know, I'll throw out a call and say, hey, I'm going to be in Portland, Oregon for a conference. Who wants to get together for coffee or, you know, whatever. And lots of guys in the group do that. Um, so that those kind of connections happen in real life. Um, but there's not a lot of research that, that demonstrates the effectiveness of that peer-to-peer -peer support. So I would love to see that happening. We know instinctively, um, which is what I was getting at with explaining Man Up to Cancer, we know instinctive, instinctively from the work that Man Up to Cancer is doing that it works and that it's effective. 
Um, it would be awesome to put some measures behind that and put some data to what we what we think we know anyway. Now, I like that one, Michael, and I think you're right. When we look at, you know, disparities, we always think of the underserved populations. But when you mm-hmm. look at, you know, men and the supports that men need the same supports, but Absolutely. what it looks like may be different. And as you said, you know, there's topics like that women aren't going to want to talk about in a mixed group either. So it 100%. makes sense to really have those peer to peer connections and how do we facilitate that but it always comes back to where's the numbers to support it so you can find the funding to be i thought that was such a great recommendation you know and it would be such a such a great odrd project to really be able to demonstrate that difference yeah i would that's that's one that like of all seven of those recommendations that's the one that i would really love to start with just because it is so personal to me and you know the trevor maxwell who's the ceo of man up to cancer you know he's about to have um high pec surgery and he's not going to be i'm not giving anything away because he talks about it very personally anyway um so i'm not violating his personal protected information but um you know he's having this very tough surgery and God forbid he'd have to do it without the support of a community of other guys around him, you know, because they're, I mean, it's just horrible. Or, you know, my friend, uh, my friends elsewhere around the country who are in the middle of 62 or 140 rounds of chemo, like you can't, you can't do that. You can't, you know, and, and they know, and they openly admit that, you know, they're struggling with their mental health. The great thing about an organization like Man Up to Cancer is, you know, we'll throw our phone numbers out there. Like, dude, call me right now. Like, if you need help right now, let's have a conversation. So, um, which is also something that people, you know, people who care do in general. Yeah, I know this conversation that we had kind of mentioned um, a couple weeks back in another project that we were working on, but, you know, it's everyone even if they have that awesome support group of their church members or their family members, you know, at some point, especially men, they don't want to be a burden to those people. You know, right. they, don't, they don't want to have to rely on their family helping them or their church family having to, you know, protect them and take care of them. So it's awesome to have another source of people that are going through what you're going through. Yeah. You may have an awesome family and an awesome church or whatever people that can support you, but having those people that are going through or have been through what you're going through is just amazing for men to have just to help with the mental health aspect of having someone to talk to for whatever they're going through. Absolutely. And I think Matthew, you really hit on it is that understanding of what you're going through because your church family, your family, friends, they're all great. And you know, they want to support you. But when you don't, when you haven't been through some of these medical things and you haven't been through the side effects and you, you don't really get it. Right. I mean, it's one thing for somebody to tell you, I don't feel well. And you say, oh, I know you're going through the chemo and I know there's these side effects. It's really different for you to say that to somebody else who's been through it. Right. And that can just relate to you in a different way. And I think that, you know, and they know the questions to ask. So I think that when it talk about mental health and particularly with men, they don't always want to open up. But if you have men who've been through it and know the targeted questions to ask to start drawing out 
that information to open up that dialogue yeah. is such a critical piece of really getting to the root of what's eating people up inside. Absolutely. And I think too, we're, we're so conditioned as people to want to provide answers and sometimes, and I know, I know women do this too. Sometimes you just want to get it out, right? You just want to say, here's all of the crap I'm dealing with right now. No answers. I just need someone to hear it, right? Um, I have a friend who um, lives in Baltimore and we have those conversations on the, you know, we're like, I'm at my wit's end. I just need, <laughs> I need to blow some steam at somebody. And I'm like, here's my number, <laughs> you know? And sometimes, you know, so sometimes that's what support looks like. And it looks, it's different for everybody. Um, and yeah, Brenda, you know, what you said is true. Like you can, you can know <laughs> what it's like to go through cancer, but it's different when you're going through it. And, you know, I remember spending what felt like an inordinate amount of time making people comfortable with the fact that I had cancer and I was in treatment and, you know, having to explain what was happening and like why I spent three days in bed when I disconnected from the pump because the steroids were gone and, the, you know, like just all of that stuff. So, yeah. Um, so, and then my last recommendation is um, a research project to develop and test messaging to patients who may wish to request a blood test to screen for colorectal cancer rather than submit to a colonoscopy. So kind of going back to the multi-cancer early detection test, there are blood tests um, that are in the process of getting FDA, FDA approval um, as kind of first-line screening for colorectal cancer. Um, and there are people we know, I know, as someone who has undergone many a colonoscopy, um, there are people who don't want to do them because they've heard horror stories about the PrEP. And first of all, I say to those people, I would do the PrEP every day for the rest of my life to never hear the words, you have cancer, ever again. But, you know, I know that horror stories are out there. PrEP has gotten better all of that, but people still don't want to do it. I get that. So as I understand it in the FDA approval process, if I'm a physician, I can't say, well, Brenda, I'll just give you the blood test instead. You have to ask for it and say, I don't want to do a colonoscopy. Can I do the blood test? So helping patients have that conversation with their physicians um, to get, you know, I'm all about <laughs> do the screening that you'll do mm -hmm. <laughs> at least for the, you know, for the first step. So if it's, if you'll do the blood test, by all means do the blood test. So, but you also have to know to ask for it if right. you don't want to do the colonoscopy. So, the, so it's important to open up those communication channels. I was about to say in your research, how much of that is, you know, getting people aware that there is a blood test option. You know, if the doctors can't offer it, you know, like you said, the patient has to know it's out there. So how much of that research did you come across that it's, you know, the awareness and getting people to know that these oh, options will soon be available? Yeah, that's huge because they're, they're new to the market. And so they're, you know, um, even physicians are still just learning that they, that they exist. So it's, it's a double, kind of the double whammy of communication is you have to educate on both sides. Um, 
you know, but at least if patients know to ask for it, hopefully that prompts their doctor to say, oh, if this is a test, then by all means, let's right. do that. So. Now, and I love, Michael, you know, all of your suggestions and recommendations here fit within things that ORAU does. Whether, you know, even if it's not directly in the cancer space, we do it somewhere. Right. And I think that that also helps demonstrate the diversity among ORAU's capabilities and the people that we have on staff. You know, so as you Absolutely. said, the people here are universities and they're like, oh, what do you teach? And when did classes start? And, but really understanding that ORAU as a company, we have our own specialists and experts and people who actually carry out this work as in conjunction with working with our university partners to do something. But, you know, that communications piece, we do education to patients. We do education to providers. We, you know, we really kind of run the gamut of different stakeholder groups that we can communicate with. And I think it's such a hard piece in medical, in the medical space, because there's so many things. And the shift in the patient provider relationship where patients can be a little more assertive in what they want and what they will and won't do. Um, you know, can you imagine, I hear all the time from the men in my life, you know, they don't want to go get the colonoscopy. Right. So, but if they knew that there was a blood test, instead of just taking the colonoscopy slip and never scheduling it, they would say, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to do that, but give me the blood test and I'll go get that done. Now they just took the slip and it never gets done. Right. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, this never happened. Yep. Yep. Oh, did you give me that slip last year? I must have missed <laughs> right, it. Right, right. I wonder what I did with it. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, and it would be great to see that expand to other types of cancer. I mean, for women, Absolutely. it's the it's the mammograms. Women are like, yep. I don't want to go get the mammogram yep. done. Absolutely. You know? So if there's a but if there's a blood test that can just be done when you're getting your other annual labs drawn. A hundred percent. Yep. You know, that's why the the multi-cancer early detection tests, blood tests are going to be so important is you're not going to have to submit to, you know, those invasive and or painful, um, because a mammogram is painful, um, you know, tests. Mm -hmm. And it also is going to test for cancers that are hard to detect, like uterine cancers and um, ovarian cancers that, and hopefully pancreatic cancers that often aren't detected until it's almost too late to do something, or it's at such a point where, um, you know, it, it is so expensive to treat um, that, you know, again, hopefully we get to a much earlier stage of disease or preventing it altogether, you know. Well, and so. I think it ties to your earlier recommendation too about improving screening in those underserved populations. Absolutely. So if, if we can get them to a primary care doctor, you need to get as much done in that one visit <laughs> so as you can get done. And it's because people don't have time to go back. People who are working who don't have sick leave can't make these appointments to then follow up, you know, you got to take two days off work for colonoscopy because of the press and the procedure itself. And so it really opens up that access 
detection. So it really kind of relates to your earlier recommendation as well. Yeah, it's um, the possibility of of that of opening up access is incredible and really um, exciting to see. You know, as a as a cancer advocate, to be advocating for you know that one piece of legislation that really could change the game for so many people um, is incredible. It's heartening, and it's why I keep spending the time that I do in the advocacy spaces because, you know, we're going to get there. And if we can reduce that disparity with a blood test, reduce cancer disparities with a blood test, how amazing would that be? Well, and like Brenda mentioned, you know, just make it a part of, you know, your, your annual checkup. You know, if you're going to get your blood drawn anyway, you know, just add in this one other test and get it all done in one. And then you're not having to take the extra time. You're not having to worry about it. You're not having to take the extra days off to go get extra testing done. And, you know, it's not only is it more convenient, but like you mentioned, the early detection is just an incredible thing to think about. You know, you're catching these cancers before it is too late, before you have to do all the chemotherapy and before you have to go through all the treatment. You know, if they can catch it earlier, it could change lives and save lives in the end. Yep, absolutely. So it's exciting. There's there's a lot of um, excitement happening in the advocacy space, and I'm really excited about um, these recommendations and, um, I'm hoping to have a conversation with the folks in our research and university partnerships office about making some of these a reality. So I would, I would, I would be over the moon for that to happen. Well, it would be great to see that because I think all of the recommendations are really important ones and would give such valuable information back to the cancer community, the providers, payers um you know so it would be great to see these come to fruition i would love it well matthew and Brenda, we have been talking for a long time (laughs) (laughs) michael one more thing you know for our listeners who have got to know you and you know got to know your story a little bit and who want to learn more about this that they can find some of this information on the website correct they can yeah so this document um Although as I was reading through it, I realized there are some edits I need to make, but that's okay. (laughs) Some typos that I'll fix. But yeah, you can actually see the white paper itself um, and a little bit more about me and my advocacy work um, at ORE.org. So um, come look it up and and let's have a conversation about cancer research. Yeah, and you know, they can get in get in touch with everybody, you know, if they want to learn more about, you know, I know there's a whole history section on the website too, if they're interested in, you know, more about the history of ORU and a lot of stuff about, you know, what we do now and our current capabilities. So anyone who's interested in learning more about any of the topics that we discussed, you know, they can go to our website and easily learn more about what ORU does and, you know, kind of our cancer history and where we're going and learn more about these recommendations that hopefully take us even further places. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Michael, for sharing the paper and your recommendations with us, but also for sharing your personal connection to this. I think it always adds to hear people be able to talk so openly about what they've gone through and what their experiences and how they're now using that to really improve things for other people as well. Well, thank you for that. And it's it's truly been my pleasure. I had no idea <laughs> when I was diagnosed that I would be where I am, but um, I think, you know, 
in all truth and honesty, God has used me where he can use me and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So, um, and it's all guided by, um, you know, my, my feeling of being called to the work that I do. So, um, that's, that's all I can say about that. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you guys. Have a great evening. Thank you, too. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.